You can just create. You just can't say it's in the Bible. Okay, if you can, how can you do that? No, I don't have to figure it out. I'm the one that's asked, asked you the question. I don't have to answer my, give an answer to my question. You got, you're the one. The burden's on you, not me. I just, I'm a, I believe in science. Like, show me where science points to God, and I, I might believe. If you can't show me where science points to God, then how can you expect me to believe your, you know, your fairy tale? What's that? Well, I can't. So I say it again. What, what, what's disappeared? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Wow, that sounds almost kind of like a miracle thing, doesn't it? What's that got to do with science? Science didn't didn't make it go away. You know, maybe maybe it wasn't there the first time. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it was just uh, you know an error in the in the CT scan. Come on. If you tell me that the science made it happen, I can believe you. If science produced a miracle, maybe I could believe you. Anybody else? Huh? Huh? Come on, come on, come on. Give me the, give me the tough ones. Come on, come on. Okay, okay, let's go on to the next one. Question number two, or, or point number two. I, I, uh, or, or someone approaches you that is not a believer, and he, and he, uh, he or she says, hey, I know, I know that that just for a fact. I know, because I read this in an article from this, from this very prestigious professor from the University of North Carolina. He says that there's thousands of errors that's in the New Testament. That, it's just full of errors anyway. Huh? Things that are wrong. Errors, I don't know. Just what he said. He just said, he just said they were wrong. There were just errors in there. He's, he's a professor. I mean, they know. What's that? He says he did his research. He studied it, did a research. Yet he had, no, no, he did a research and he did a study. He wrote it up in, a, in an article and I read it. And he said he, it, said it had these, these reports like over here it says this thing over here and then over here it says about the same story and it's different. Huh? Huh, okay. Well, maybe, maybe. Let me give you another one. There really is no such thing as an absolute truth. Come on. No, no, there is no absolute. I mean, what is true for you is true for you, Peggy. And what's true for me is true for me. It's just, you know, so here, that being the case, and of course it obviously is the case, so how, how, can, you, how can you believe, how can you believe that this Jesus is the truth and the only way? Come on. No, I'm, cha I'm a different person now. I was a scientist with number one. I'm a different person. I'm a chameleon. I change. I'm a different person. Besides, even if I was a scientist, I could do whatever I want. So anyway, back to my issue. How can you believe if there's no such thing as absolute truth? Okay, so what's, what's, what's in the middle of the 
You tell me. You don't know how to spell belief? How could I believe you if you can't even spell it? Okay, one more, last one. one. People, here's the thing. People cannot come back from the dead. It doesn't happen. Ah, yeah, I know people get these near-death experiences, and people have written about it. Ah, that's all fine, but nobody dies, and after three days, all of a sudden pops up and says, da-da, here I am. So how in the world can I believe your faith in Christianity when your whole faith is predicated upon this man Jesus coming back to life? Man, experience? What, you've experienced death and come back to life? You did? After three days and they were buried and they come up and got out? Really? Wow. Well, that's a pretty good answer. If, if, you, uh, if, you can, uh, if you can be sure that they died, then I can't argue with that. Can't argue with that. You can't answer. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So you did well. All of you actually, factually and honestly and completely, as well as a few more as we go through it. So that's the crux of what we want to talk about uh, over the next several weeks. Um, I want you to consider inviting your friends and family that are not here tonight. Bring them along. Let's fill up this place. Because we're going to discover a lot of neat things, a lot of interesting things about the Christian faith and how to articulate those things to others. This whole process that what we're going to do is really not about convincing you. I'm not interested in convincing you about your faith. You already have your faith. I don't need to do that. What I'm really interested in doing is equipping you, preparing you so that you can convince others who are not believers. That's our goal. That's what we want to accomplish. I want you to not fear those kinds of questions. I want you to welcome them. So as we begin, I uh, 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 want you to know that I would prefer, but you're welcome to take notes and do whatever you want. But the easiest thing to do is to sit back and relax and pay attention because we're going to cover a lot of information, lots of information. And tonight especially going to have a lot of tidbits of information. Trying to write all that down and remember that is going to be very difficult. The best thing for you to do, and it's on your own, it's up to you, but if you see my email, uh, it's back this way, but I see it up here. If you write that email down and send me a note, you don't have to do anything, you don't have to write anything, just send me the email to that, and in the subject line, say notes, or say slides, or say notes and slides. That's all you got to do in the subject line, and just hit send. When I get it, I'll attach a copy of my PowerPoint presentation and my notes that I teach from and send it back to you. You'll have everything, everything that I intend to say. It may not be everything that I say, but it's everything that I intended to say. Now, tonight is a little different because I'm not giving you um, uh, the normal talks that I have prepared and give where I script everything out and have all that. All I have is the slides. So if you send me a note this time, you're just going to get the slides. But the slides speak for themselves, so you don't really need to worry about that. They sort of, they sort of cover themselves and take care of everything. Um, one other point. 
you can't ask for the slides and, and notes and not come to the, the class. You can only ask for them if you're actually here. <laughs> so no cheating. No, I'm, te I'm teasing. You want them, you can have them no matter what. You can give them to other people. They're not copyrighted. Uh, they all come, everything that I ever teach or give all comes from God. It's not mine anyway. So you take it and do with it as you, uh, as you please. Hopefully we'll help you down the road. Let's begin by taking a look at a passage of Scripture from 1 Peter chapter 3. It should be on the screen. There we go. This is from the, uh, the Christian Standard Version. It says, But set apart the Messiah, Christ, as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian faith will be put to shame. This is a beautiful passage. A passage that really we use as a foundation passage for the study and the, and the discipline of apologetics. For in here where it says, be ready to give a defense, the Greek word there in the original text is apologia. Apologia is where we get the word apologetics. So that's what we use. It's a very important passage of Scripture, and there's three things I want you to take away. There's a lot of things. We could, we could preach a lot of sermons on this passage, actually. I'm not going to do that, but there's three things I want you to take away in preparation for what we're going to talk about tonight and for the weeks to come. Number one, key points. It says to make Jesus Lord. And that means we have, we have to live a Christ-filled and Christ-focused life. He has to be the center of our life. A, a life that's such that generates questions. We should live a life where people want to ask us questions about our life. If they can't ask any questions of our life, then there's no difference in our life. So we need to be growing so strong in our faith that we know and understand what we believe, and we live it out in such a way that people see it and want to know what it's all about. Live a life that generates questions. And number two, we have to be able to answer those questions when they come. Not just telling people what we believe. That is the easy part. We need to be able to articulate why we believe, and why and how what we believe represents the real, genuine, absolute truth. Must be able to do that. That's what that passage is really calling us to do here. And that means that everyone, every single one, every one of us, every believer needs to have at least one non-believer active in their life. The more you have, the better. But you need to have one. Someone that's not just a casual acquaintance, but someone you interact with on an ongoing basis. Maybe even a close friend. Somebody to whom you can invest in their life, build equity in their life. Someone who will feel comfortable enough to ask you those tough questions like I asked you earlier this evening. And third, number three there, that third point, we need to make a successful connection between our head, which is our knowledge, our rational thinking, and our hearts, where the love for the Lord and others lies. This must have a, 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 a true, genuine connection that impacts our lives. Faith is primarily a heart issue. Always has been, always will be. But it's also connected to our head. We are rational creatures. God made us that way. 
That's what differentiates us from the animals. We're able to think, be rational. So we must have that connection. Scripture in Isaiah 1.18 says, Come, let us, what? Reason together. I had a seminary professor. He'd always say one of his favorite sayings was that God never bypasses the, the head on his way to the heart. He always ends up in our heart, but he doesn't bypass the head on the way. We must keep that, that uh, a connection. So this passage here in, in um, uh, 1 Peter um, makes this connection between evangelism and apologetics. So let's break that down a little bit, a little bit more so we can get a, a deeper understanding. What is evangelism? Don't read the screen. What's evangelism? Going out and witnessing. What are you witnessing? To Christ. Okay. You're conveying what? The gospel message. You witness to the gospel message. St. Francis of Assisi said that we should always be, always be proclaiming Christ. And when necessary, use words. There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Evangelism is simply just telling people about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and doing that to a lost person. A believer to an unbeliever. That's evangelism. Pretty simple. Don't have to make it complicated. So what then is apologetics? Apologetics is making a rational defense of the Christian faith. That Greek word apologia is a, is a, uh, is, is a legal term. It's used in ancient Greek for, for, for legal proceedings. Uh, so that's what it is. It's making a rational logical defense of the Christian faith. It's telling why our faith represents the truth. That's what it is. The head then and the heart then is connected. Evangelism comes from our heart. Apologetics comes from a combination sort of the heart and the head. Use our head. We connect them together. And that's what, that's what, you're, that's, that's what makes evangelism the most effective. Let's take a look at a little bit more about apologetics and what it involves. Acts 19.19 uh, uh, says that it's, it's, and the word here is arguing. I don't like that word. I wish it's probably better uh, uh, to say it's explaining or demonstrating persuasively about the kingdom of God. It represents knowing our faith. Knowing, we've got to know what we believe, folks. You know how many people I, I, I come across who want to be able to, you know, defend their faith. They don't even know what they're defending. You've got to really know your faith. It also means knowing why that faith is true, being able to articulate this truth. It also involves knowing some competitive faith or, or at least uh, competitive um, ideas, not necessarily religions. In some cases, you do need to know that. I've studied every religion in the world, every one. I've read every, a piece of every religious book in the world. I read a good chunks of, of uh, the Book of Mormon. I read a good chunk of the Quran. I read all these different things, interacted with it. But you don't need to have that detail. And you'll see in just a minute, to be successful and effective here in America, you don't really have to have that kind of detail. But you need to know something about competing faiths. Even if it's just the biggest competing faith we have is self. The self-God. And secularism. 
That's craziness in this country, relativism. We'll see more of that in just, uh, in just a little bit. So you've got to know something about it. But probably most importantly, you've got to be able to build bridges and break down walls that inhibit the gospel presentation. So what, uh, let's a little bit look at, uh, look a little bit closer at evangelism and apologetics, at least the difference. Um, evangelism then is just, it just uh, 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 telling the, the gospel message, the good news, this mystery, mysterion, pastor. He knows what I mean as an inside joke. The mysterion of God's salvation for all. Just sharing it. Apologetics is the reason why that message represents not just the truth, but the complete and only truth. And that's what I want you to learn during these next few weeks. So evangelism and apologetics, this relationship, it kind of goes together like this. Apologetics is the handmaiden to evangelism. It isn't evangelism. But it opens the path to it. Apologetics provides, if you will, the road to evangelism. You know, you can be an evangelist without being an apologist. You can do that. But I would argue in today's world, you would not be a very effective evangelist. You can be an apologist without being an evangelist. But I would argue you'd be a pretty worthless apologist because you would have no point to your apology. What's your point? You see, there's another chasm. It's called the cultural gap. And along the way up there, below those lines, you see some numbers, some minus numbers. These, these numbers represent the distance from someone, of someone from making a decision about Christ. It's not their distance from God. You're either with God or you're not. There's no, there's no variation there. But this is the distance from making a decision for Christ. And you'll see that distance, those numbers get bigger as you, as you get further down. So you move away from that uh, sin chasm, you get to that cultural chasm. These things um, and in culture and social aspects within culture and the philosophical things and those kinds of things that separate people from the gospel message. Then you also see further down on your left this wall. That's the ism barrier, the faith barriers, these isms of different kinds of faith systems that stand in the way of people being able to receive or willing to receive the gospel message. What are some of these, these, these barriers? Can you think of some? What are some, some of the isms? Judaism. Okay, that's, a, that's an ism. If you're a, 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 a diehard uh, um, uh, uh, Orthodox Jew, uh, that's a pretty big barrier to the presentation of the gospel. What other kind of isms are there? Secularism. That's a good one. That's a big one. We're going to see that in a little bit. Any other isms? Mormonism, Hinduism. We could go down the, hung, the, the, the long list of, of the isms, including atheism. Because atheism is a faith system, every much so as Christianity is. It's not a religion, what we normally view as a religion, but it still is a faith system. 
Somebody is putting their faith in, what, uh, in the fact that there is no God. They live their life on that faith that there is no God, and they won't be held accountable because of it. It's a faith system. So those are the ism barriers that exist. And one thing I want to point out is in the far left behind that, uh, that wall, the numbers of people that exist there is growing exponentially. Over the last 20 years, it's really, really grown. You'll see that in some of the statistics I'm going to show you in just, in just a little bit. In fact, that move, that shift in those numbers is shifted to the left dramatically over the years. So much so that there's really not that many people at that minus one and minus two level. That used to be the majority of American culture. That's why it was evangelism was, was very effective by itself. You can go and share the gospel with people. You can give them a track. You can read from Scripture with them. They would grasp and understand what you were talking about. Today, that's not true. Not in America, it's not true. Especially not in anywhere in the West, as far as that goes. So that number has grown. Now let's fill in the blanks. That first chasm. You fill in that blank or that chasm with the cross. Now that's pretty obvious. You know that. That's the way to God, right? And that's the gospel message. That's what you share. That's what evangelism is for. It's easy for those that are minus one and minus two. But there's not many of them, as I pointed out. Now you come back to that, 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 to that next uh, uh, cultural gap, and you have to bridge it. You have to build a bridge across it. And the church has been doing this, actually, for several years. You're bridging that, that, uh, that uh, 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 cultural, social uh, gap. What are some things that the church has done? This church has done some of them to bridge that gap. Can you think of anything? Community groups, yes. Small groups, community groups is one way. It really helps. It helps do that. Uh, you know, it used to be a piano and an organ and choir. You see more and more now, most churches are gone to a contemporary format with contemporary music. Anything else? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Live streamings. That's really becoming popular now, right? More and more people are, are, are watching church online. We could go on. What's that? Less formal. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> come on. When I grew up, I would never show up at church on a Wednesday night dressed like this. You know? You just don't do that. And on Sunday morning without a tie? Come on. I can remember. This is a true story. I can remember the first time on a Sunday night Somebody came to our church wearing shorts. And it was like, it was, yeah, it was like this, is the, this must be the biggest sinner on earth. How, how could this person come into our church wearing shorts? That's a true story. I'll never forget that. Okay, so we got, the, we got that bridge, and that's good, but we're not done yet because we just talked about the biggest number of people today, the growing number, is on the other side of that wall. So in order to, to reach them with the gospel, you've got to break down the wall. And you break down the wall only one way. There's only one way to break down the wall. You break down the wall with truth. The real truth. No other way. You can't do anything else. You have to break it down with the truth. And the only way you can do that is you have to go where they're at. Not likely they're going to come in here. 
You've got to go where they're at in order for that to occur. And in order for you to do that, you've got to be able to be missional. Look back at that graph. The far right-hand side, you see some of the numbers. Do you not? They're all plus numbers. The passage you read says we have to make what? Christ Lord of our lives. We have to commit ourselves to Him and His, and His Word, and we have to grow and mature. That means we must not only learn about the Bible, which we need to know, but we need to understand why, why it's the truth and make it alive in our life. We have to become missionaries in our own home, in our own neighborhood, in our own town. So I say, and I like to tell people, they need to become missional and apologetic disciples. People who will go behind the walls with the truth and articulate why it's the truth to break down the walls and present the gospel message. So that's a picture of where we're at and what's going on. So why is this important? Why is knowing all about this? Why, why is it important? Why can't we just stand on the corner or go house to house and hand out a track? Why don't people respond the way they used to? What's wrong with these people? The Democrats. The Democrats. <laughs> okay, moving right along. Why? What's that? Things change. Things change. Society has changed, hasn't it? It has. Society is no longer the same as it once was. I can remember a time back in the 1950s, 60s, when you, you, you did a, a survey of society, the average American, on a, on a scale of, let's say, 1 to 10, with 10 being a believer, then the average American who was not a believer would still be an 8. That's true. I had all kinds of people in my, lives when I, in my life when I was a kid who didn't go to church and weren't so-called believers, the way we would define it, but they knew all about the Bible, they knew about Jesus, they believed in God. That is not true today. Society at best would be a two on that scale, maybe a three. That's the problem. That's the problem. So here's the truth. Here's the truth. The current moral state of society is at its lowest point in the history of our nation. We're experiencing a very rapid moral decay in the world in which we live. And our children and grandchildren are the ones who are going to suffer for it. That's the truth. So if we're experiencing this moral decay, then what are morals? And why are they so important? Well, morals involve the principles of right thought, which lead to right conduct and behavior. Morals are the yardstick for the application, or not just a description of the way things are. That's what a lot of people believe. Not just the way they believe. That's what we believe as society, so it's okay. Morals are not the description of how things are or the way people want them to be. Morals are prescriptions for how things truly ought to be. If I go to the doctor, and the doctor examines me, and does all these tests, and through all that he analyzes it, 
and he writes me a prescription, or he, nowadays he sends it via whatever to the drugstore. So I show up in my, in my handy car out to the drive-thru to pick up my prescription, and the, the person on the other end hands me this drug, and I look at it and say, but, but this is not what the doctor ordered. And she says, well, but you know, I, I, I know who you are. You don't really look that sick. So I think this is, this, you, this is all you need. It'll save you some money. I don't know about you, but I'm not okay with that. I'm just not. I want the prescription that's going to fix my disease or my illness, right? I don't want somebody's opinion about it. But we're living in a world where we're letting opinions determine what our spiritual beliefs are. Rather, getting, rather than finding the real prescription. So what is the source of morals? Where do they come from? What do you think? Where do you think morals in America, the morals of America, come from today? Any thoughts? What do you think? Ten the Ten Commandments? You think society today are following the Ten Commandments? Some of them are. You're right. You are correct in that. More so, they don't even know they are. But some of them are, yeah. The little guy sitting on my shoulder. The, the, the <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay. That's a good one, because that's, that's probably more true than, than from, for most people. Yeah. Where should our morals come from? Huh? Yeah, they're from God, right? Yeah. God has given us this moral compass. Morals come from God. He's given us a moral compass that's built into our DNA. It's called the moral law. And the moral law is one of the three great proofs for the existence of God. It's true. Unfortunately, the wonderful moral law of God has been corrupted by our sin and our sinful nature. Therein lies a dilemma that we have to deal with. We've seen a decline then in the morality of our society because it's no longer following the prescription from God. And we can see the reason for that pretty clearly. And what is it? What do you think it is? Sin? Yeah, sin, but what does sin, what does sin do to us? What, is it, what, what happens? Yeah, separates us from God. Exactly right. We aren't living by morals or, or, or the, uh, uh, God's prescription for morals because we're in a society. I'm talking about we personally. I'm talking about society because we've disconnected ourselves from God. Norm Geisler, someone I know very well from seminary, He's a very uh, renowned apologist and, and um, a philosopher. He died a couple of years ago. But he used to have this saying all the time. He said, you know, why are you surprised at what you see happening in our country? Why? Because it's simple. If you take God out of society, God the big G, you'll end up with a godless society. Duh. Pretty simple. And that's exactly what we see. In our country today. What's that? One nation under God, yeah. Well, we have we have we don't have one nation anymore. 
And we're, not, we're under God, we're not, and, and I'll show you in just a minute, we're under God, but not God with a big G. That's part of our problem. You remember back in 1969, some of us, I won't point any figures, but some of us can remember back to 1969. And if you remember that far back, you remember that, that Time magazine had an article, and on the front page was the cover of, uh, uh, that, that uh, uh, led you into that article that asked this question, is God, with a big G, dead. Because back at that time, that was a big deal. Everybody was talking about it. God is dead. God is dead. Well, of course, as time proved, God was not dead. God lives on. But we have something else today. Something else. This came out in News um, uh, or Time magazine a few years ago. And it says this. The present, in this sense, is less about the death of God, big G, and more about the birth of many gods, little g. That's our problem with the morality in our country. We have a bunch of little g's and not too much of the big G. Let's take a look at some of the evidence that kind of points us out. We're going to throw some of these things out here real quick. I don't have to uh, stay on them uh, very long. But USA Today says that uh, people are making up God as they go. There's truth to that. One, over two-thirds, over two-thirds of believers, that means Christians who really believe, say there is no such thing as absolute truth. Two-thirds. Say there's no such thing as absolute truth. Petzler College, this is interesting. You can get a whole degree in secularism. 25% of parents in America today are unmarried. 35% of unmarried parents are just cohabitating with somebody else. 42.7 or 43% of Internet users view porn on the Internet. Now, if you think of the fact that almost everybody uses the Internet today, now, do the math. 47% of that number is huge. It's rampant. And there's an increasing number of people who believe it doesn't matter what God you pray to because all the deities of the world and the world kingdoms are ultimately the same deity, same God. Did you see that? Wow. And that includes a large number of Christians, as you'll, as you'll soon see. And there's an increasing number of, of people who want to decriminalize prostitution as well as other crimes. Since I was talking about moral things, I stayed with the prostitution uh, aspect. But man, oh man, it's going crazy. Let's take a look at religious affiliations. It's another, another uh, 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 impact that we've had with this degradation of mor morality in America. Look at this. Christians now, those who claim to be Christians, are down to 63%. This is 2021. And that's down from 77% in 2009, which is down from 90% in 1990. See how quickly that line is, 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 is dropping? Now, these aren't Christians necessarily who go to church. These are just people who say, oh, I'm a Christian. It includes everybody who will say, I'm a Christian. That's only 63%. It used to be 90. Look at that next one. This is the, big, the most important one on here. That's why I put it in red. The nuns. 
29% of all Americans now classify themselves as none. And that's up from 17% in 2009. And you know, for our younger adults, millennials, that number is 39%. Consider themselves nuns. And these aren't atheists. You know, the number of atheists in America hasn't changed very much. As a percent of the population, it stays pretty, pretty consistent in 13, 14 to 15% around over the many years, it hasn't changed much. This is a growth in something different. This is people who say, I don't really care about religion. I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. They have lots of little gods. Look at that other number, Nine, uh, 8%. We hear a lot about, well, the growth in, what about Islam? We've got to be afraid of Islam. Not really. 8%. That's all other religions, including Judaism. Everybody's thrown in there in America. It's only about 8%. The real number we need to be concerned with is that 29% and how quickly it's growing. I saw this as a headline a while back from, uh, uh, from the religious news service. It says, the United States is steadily, be, steadily becoming less Christian, and the number of people with no religion is rising. These are the twin headlines of the latest Pew Research report, which shows a dramatic decline in American religious habits over the course of a decade. So what about those who attend church? These are people who say they go to church, Christian church. 68%, over two-thirds of those who attend church believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. Folks, that's, that's amazing. 41% agree that gender is just a matter of choice. 50% say that casual sex between consenting adults is just okay, it's fine. 49%, almost 50, agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, catch us, rather than what? Truth. Here's the thing, surprising. Most people in the United States still believe in a God, a deity of some kind. Not the God of the Bible, but a God of some kind. So here's the thing. People today are, are as spiritual as any time in the past 50 years. Yet the average spiritual person is farther away from the genuine truth than at any time in our history. And why is that so? We'll argue those four major things, four contributors, four things that make that happen. The four biggies. There's others, four biggies. Number one. The secularization of society. You said it earlier. Or you said it. Someone, somebody out here said it. The secularization of society. Removing to a humanist belief system while at the same time we're moving toward being more spiritual. That's an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. Yet it's rampant in our country. And there's a perceived lack of revelancy of the church among people who do not go to church. 
even after we've done all this over the last 20 years to build this bridge over that cultural chasm, the cultural gap and all that stuff, people still don't believe we're relevant to their lives. Number three, there's a major decline of the biblical worldview. Now listen to these numbers. Only 9% of the population of America have a biblical worldview. Nine. Out of all of America, nine have a biblical worldview. And if you look at our younger adults, the millennials, that's only 4%. 4% have a biblical worldview. So if you do the math, when that 63% who confess to be Christians, that means that only 14.4% of those people have a biblical worldview. No wonder. No wonder we don't know how to live. We have no guidance from God. And lastly, it's very important, maybe more important than the others, is this thing called relativism. That's a biggie, folks. Relativism is the currency of young America. It is the center of their belief system. It produces their morality. What is relativism? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Truth is not absolute. What's true is true for you. What's true for, true for me. We can get together in our little tribe and we'll come up with our own truth. And we'll live by it. That's all that matters. We don't have a biblical worldview. We don't even know anything about the Bible other than that Jesus is good. And so we'll say Jesus loves us and that's okay. We'll call ourselves a Christian. But we'll, we'll decide what our moral values are in our tribe. Relativism is horrific. All this wokeness is driven to a large extent by relativism. So lastly, let's take a look at our, our chart, our graph once again. Here's the thing. We have to be committed to breaking down those ism barriers. And we can only do that with the truth. And it's not a truth that people are going to come and take. It's a truth we have to take to them. We have to be willing to do that. And that can only be articulated with the use of apologetics. We have been mandated by the Lord to go into the world with the good news, the gospel message. But we've got to be able to be effective in our message. And we need to know the truth and how to articulate that truth, which is our Christian faith and why it's true and why science will point to the existence of God. I can tell you how that is and why there is such a thing as a real absolute truth. Just that statement when someone says there's no absolute truth is self-defeating. Why? Why is that self-defeating? Right. Because it is an absolutely true statement. Duh. Sure. You see how ridiculous it is? Yes. And we can explain why the New Testament is valid and true. And the quote-unquote errors are only things that people don't fully understand. There's a way to show all that to be true. 
And that's what we want to learn over the next six weeks. So uh, the next five weeks, there we go. So here's the thing we're going to do. Those three, three sessions that I am going to give, these are locked in. We're going to talk about divine design, how the design of the physical world proves the existence of God. Then we're going to look at the reliability of the New Testament, how we know it contains the truth and how it can be trusted. And we're going to look the last week leading up to Easter about the proof for the resurrection, how we know it actually occurred and why that really matters. We learn all of that stuff where you can sit with someone and explain it to be the truth. But there's two other subjects we want to have, and I'm going to leave those up to you because, quite frankly, when I teach this course in apologetics, it's about 15, 16 weeks long. I don't, the pastor didn't give me 15, 16 weeks. I only got six. So I picked three that I want to do, and I'm going to let you pick from a list of five others that I have. So I need, some, I need a volunteer to help me here. Okay. Take one of these sheets. Take some that way. Take some this way. Take one and pass it around. And there's five topics. I want you to mark, check, circle, however you want to do it, two of the five that you would like to address with the time that we have left. And I'll integrate that into my agenda and schedule. I may adjust my, my talks here depending upon which ones you choose. And we will, we will cover those in, the, um, in the, uh, the following weeks. So the first on your list is truth versus relativism. What is truth and why it must be absolute. We'll talk about why we know, how we can know there is a real truth. It's pretty simple. We'll explain that. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the second one is if God is real, then why does he allow evil? That's a big question. A lot of people really have a problem with that one. Three is, how do we know the Old Testament is reliable? I'm going to talk about the New Testament. I'm not going to talk about the Old unless you choose it. And four, who really is this Jesus? And why is his identity, really, and why it really matters, what, what, who he was? We'll talk about that if you choose that. And lastly, how does the beginning of the universe point to the existence of God? That's the beginning, the creation, not, not, not the design of the universe, but the beginning of the universe. That's the difference. We're going to talk about the design. We've already, already done that. So pick your two. Pick your poison. Here's your chance. And we're going then, I'll integrate those in, and we'll talk about them. And uh, depending on what, we, uh, what you choose, uh, I'm, I'm planning on doing divine design next week, but I can change that if you pick uh, something else I think would fit better for that time. Okay, if you want to, everybody's got that done? You want to, just want to kind of pass them to the side here, and I'll, I'll pick them up, and then we'll, uh, we'll go home. It's, uh, I didn't do bad, 8 o'clock. Hey, that's, I said I had, he said I had to 8.30. So I'm doing really good. Oh, yo, look at here. Collect, are you picking every collection? All right. I like it that no, you know, when I was asking these questions at the beginning, nobody asked me to give, give my view of it. I was waiting for somebody to say, well, what do you think, Richard? That's what the guys on Thursday always say. What do I, how do I always answer? 
<laughs> okay, so we're taking take you uh, you taking the uh, offering now? Yes. Are you want you want me to close? You want to, want me to close this out? David's just taking the money. He's not praying. He's taking the money. That's hard because it's already polluted. We need to close in prayer. I, I'll, I'll close this when, when David's done. Everybody, everybody. Uh, final questions. Any final questions before we close? Good question. Um, if you want what I gave you tonight, you need to send me an email to get it. Or, or if you do it later, you need to specify then which one it is. So I'll know. If you want all of them, yes, you can say that. Give me a note and say you want all of them, and I'll, I'll remember your, your email address, and I'll just automatically send it to you. Okay? I'll do that. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the day you've given us. What an awesome God you are. We thank you for, most of all, our Lord Jesus and the love you've extended through him to us and to the world. I wish everyone knew the joy of knowing you through Christ and faith in Christ. And I pray that everyone here this evening will learn enough to be able to go out and be a true missionary for you and knock down those walls. Let nothing stand in the way of your wonderful message of love. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.